0: Well, Father, we quiet our hearts and bow our heads in your presence as we reach for our Bibles. And it's with anticipation that we would receive your word, that it would impact our lives, that we would be um, careful obeyers. Lord, thank you for the way you use your word in our lives. Thank you for the power that is there, that it is a quick and powerful and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces down into us. And it reveals to us what we are and what we need to be and how to live. Father, through your Holy Spirit and through the power of the word, minister to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I can remember the very first time I ever went to a rescue mission. It was to minister, not to live. And... Um, If you're familiar with rescue missions, they are interesting places. I'm so thankful for them. There's one in Martinsburg that some of our men have been working on as they're building uh, whole new facilities there that we're thankful to be a part of and supporting. I was 15 years old and my dad pastored a little Bible church in southern Michigan. And Kalamazoo, Michigan is really a real city and a real place. It's pretty big actually. And there's a rescue mission in downtown Kalamazoo. And one of the men in our church was on the board and was very active with the rescue mission. And he took a turn preaching. Um, a rescue mission is a place where homeless people can find shelter. Um, they particularly minister to men and uh, who are homeless, jobless, who many times are very broken. They can come in and have a shower. They can have a bed to sleep on, and one of the requirements to get supper is they have to stay for chapel, and they have to hear a gospel message, with the end goal being that the word of God, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, would reach their hearts and salvage their lives. It's really kind of an intimidating place to go. I was 15, and in our little Bible church where my dad was the pastor and this other fellow was on the board of the rescue mission... We were all involved in our church ministry in a lot of different ways. And my older brother played the piano. And and because my dad was the pastor and I didn't have a choice, I had to sing sometimes. And and so this man asked my brother, it is kind of comical, but it was uh, good years for us. But this man asked my brother if he would come with him to the rescue mission, play the piano, and if I could come along and and sing a solo. And uh, I was 15 years old and very intimidated, but I remember what I sang. I sang that old gospel song, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. It's at Calvary, because at Calvary is where we offload our sin, and we receive forgiveness, and we receive newness of life in Christ, isn't it? Well, it was particularly memorable for me, because as I started singing, a drunk guy walked down the middle of the aisle and started singing with me. and. Uh, I just looked him in the eye and I kept on singing and at 15 I had enough maturity to know and I had enough faith in the gospel to know that what that drunk guy was singing was exactly what he needed. The Apostle Paul is going to use a word in our text this morning that very much describes the lives of men in a rescue mission. The word is shipwrecked, shipwrecked. I don't know what I used to think of how those guys got to that mission, but through the years as I've preached and ministered to homeless people and ministered in rescue missions in a variety of cities, I began to realize that every person in the chair in the rescue mission chapel or dining room had a story. And almost all of them, it didn't start out broken. Do you know that? They didn't start out shipwrecked. Some of them had pretty, pretty great lives. They, they very much had their act together according to the world. It's not difficult to find people who've been teachers and doctors and lawyers and successful businessmen. But when you think about the word shipwrecked and how that applies to a broken life, it is interesting. What happens to a ship to become shipwrecked? It goes somewhere it's not supposed to go. It gets into waters that are unfamiliar It ends up being maybe hit with a storm that was unexpected. And it is tossed and it is turned and it is twisted. And it is broken on the rocks. And that's a word picture for a life that is shipwrecked. Didn't really plan to be there. Just got up one day and went somewhere they weren't supposed to go. Begin to think thoughts. Begin to compromise their conscience begin to allow themselves the luxuries of the flesh that should have never been indulged. And then one day, they woke up at a rescue mission. I don't think anybody decides that they're going to wake up at a rescue mission. That's pretty crazy if you say uh, at your graduation from high school, when I grow up, uh, I want to live at a rescue mission. That's not how it works. You're there because you're broken, you're shipwrecked. It's at a little different level that the Apostle Paul is speaking to us in our series on church matters in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I invite you to turn there. He's not so much talking about somebody that at first glance looks broken or smells like urine or is wearing mismatched shoes and clothes, living on the street. The Apostle Paul, when he uses the word shipwrecked in this passage, is actually talking about leaders in a church. But they end up somewhere they never intended to be. And the Apostle Paul says, when it comes to protecting the local church, and when it comes to the matters of the local church, that the leadership in that church needs to pay close attention to their conscience and to their doctrine, so that they don't violate either one and... End up somewhere they never intended to be, and spiritually speaking, end up broken. Often, spiritual brokenness leads to moral depravity and brokenness as well. Do you know that? That as we turn our eyes off of the Lord, and as we compromise our conscience, and as we compromise our theology, it often leads to behavior that is immoral at a number of levels. And in turn, people who were actively involved in church, people who are in church leadership, can end up places they never thought they would be. We have just a brief text this morning. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18 through 20. I find it a relatively interesting text. I think that there's at least part of a phrase in there that you will find fascinating. Maybe you will find it somewhat uh, in your face even. And uh, we'll see what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Let's break the passage down and let's understand it first. Let me just remind you because I see some faces that are relatively new and it's been a week or two since we've been in First Timothy with our Thanksgiving message. By the way, starting next Sunday we will start a Christmas series and then we will begin chapter 2 of First Timothy on the first Sunday, Lord willing, of the new year. And we will begin our year as the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy on church matters on the importance of prayer, we will have a challenge for the new year that we be a praying church. And we look forward to that. I trust that you will let the Lord use that in your life in the weeks ahead. But as we conclude chapter 1 and then head into the Christmas season, here's our text. Let's read it together and then we'll break it down. First Timothy chapter 1 beginning with verse 18. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, remember, writing a letter to Timothy who's at Ephesus put in charge of a ministry while the Apostle Paul takes off, and some of the leaders at Ephesus, the elders and the spiritual leaders of the church, are turning off course. In fact, in this passage, we find out they are so off course, they have, spiritually speaking, hit the rocks and become shipwrecked in their faith. They now believe things that aren't even true, that Paul never taught, that is not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy is put in charge as a young pastor to put it all together, to correct it, to write the course of the good ship Ephesus. Timothy, my son, verse 18, Paul says, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, that would be faith and a good conscience, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What an interesting little passage. As Timothy opens this letter and reads it from the Apostle Paul, he's already been kind of intimidated by the first part of the text. As the Apostle Paul reminds him, number one, as we break down the passage, of Timothy's charge. He said, Timothy, my son, I give you this, the NIV translates the next word, instruction. I give you an instruction. The word there is really stronger than just how we think of the word instruction. It's kind of like, I'm going to give you some instructions. Look, uh, go to Sheets and get gas, then go to the food line and get some milk and come home. Some instructions. That's not how Paul is talking here. The word really is charge. The New King James, and the King James uses the word that NIV translates instruction in verse 18 as charge. I charge you, Timothy. That's a stronger word, isn't it? We don't use that commonly in our language, but we uh, do it enough that we understand this is a charge. It's a a responsibility put on this person. I'm giving you this responsibility. The New American Standard actually translates the word command. So Paul reminds Timothy in verse 18 here in chapter 1, he said, Timothy, I'm giving you this command, this charge, these instructions, this responsibility, this weight is on you. Don't forget. And what is it? It was to put things in place, look back up at verse 3 and 4, he said, I urged you, when I went to Macedonia, Paul took off, I urged you then, Timothy, to stay in Ephesus, so that you would command certain men not to teach false doctrine. And then the whole rest of the passage, basically, is talking about how they had gotten off into erroneous teaching and false doctrine. The Apostle Paul reminds us of the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ in there. And as he wraps up the opening section of his letter, here in verses 18 through 20, the first thing we see in the passage is Timothy's charge. Timothy's charge, stay in Ephesus, command certain men, I give you this instruction. It was along with number two, Timothy's calling. Timothy's calling. Look at the next part of the sentence, verse 18. Timothy, my son, I give you this charge or this instruction, And it is in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Now what is that? What are the prophecies once made about Timothy? Well, we have a little bit of a clue if we turn over to chapter 4 and verse 14. Look there in 1 Timothy. Just let your eyes turn to the next page, to chapter 4 and verse 14. Paul is continuing to instruct Timothy and he reminds him of something. In this passage, 414, he says to Timothy, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a, here's that prophecy word, a prophetic message when, when what? When the body of elders laid their hands on you. Now, when do elders lay their hands on young pastors? Usually at some kind of a commissioning or some kind of a calling service, some kind of an ordination, a recognition that this young pastor has been tested and proven and is qualified for the ministry, and then the elders will lay hands on them. Sometimes it's before a calling to a special work. So we don't have the details in our Bible, but somewhere along the line, young Timothy had the elders gather around him and put their hands on him, and at that meeting, somebody prophesied about him. And I don't know that this was some kind of like, woo-woo, prophecy, but it was like one of the spiritual leaders, the elders, made a prophetic statement in the sense of, and we do this sometimes, I mean, it's possible that it was more of an apostolic prophecy, but I suspect that it was more of just a, a spiritual statement about how the older men, as they laid hands on this young pastor, could see that God was going to use him in the future. And somebody spoke up about that. And maybe they said something like this, Timothy, you're a fine, godly young pastor. Stay the course, brother, because we know and we are telling you that God is going to use you in mighty ways in the future. You are going to be one who stands for the truth. And you're going to be one that God is going to put a responsibility on. And we've we've made these statements, Timothy, and they make these statements. Timothy, in the future, God is going to have a role for you. You be faithful to Him. Be the man God is calling you to be. And so it's at least at some level like that. Back to chapter 1 and verse 18. That at Timothy's calling or Timothy's commissioning service prophecies were made about him that he would stand for the truth. And so Paul, as he's writing, makes an appeal to his very calling. Evidently, the Apostle Paul was one of those men who laid hands on Timothy. And he reminds him, I've given you a charge, stay in Ephesus, clean up the church. Secondly, you have a calling, and at that calling, it was prophesied about you that you would stand for the truth. So you see how the Apostle Paul is making an appeal to the core of Timothy's conviction about his role in ministry. Now, I take it that Timothy's a little bit intimidated here. It's not easy to go to a church, go to their spiritual leaders, and say, you guys are shipwrecked. You guys are just messed up. And here's this young whippersnapper pastor that's supposed to straighten him out. And so Paul is telling him, Timothy, I give you this charge, this instruction, And this instruction, this charge, is in keeping with your calling, with the prophecies that were made about you when we laid hands upon you, so that by following them, let's look to our text, so that by following them, what? Your charge and your calling, that you may fight the good fight. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Timothy, fight the good fight. It's like, I thought we were supposed to love one another at church, not fight one another at church. He's not talking about fighting one another. The third part of Paul's message to Timothy right here, I call Timothy's combat. Timothy's combat. Fight the good fight. What's he talking about? Well, who are our enemies? We don't have time for a, an exhaustive study on this right now, but let me just remind you that as a Christian, we have some enemies, don't we? And we're speaking in spiritual terms. Okay? We have enemies that... We have to fight every day to live for Jesus and to walk in holiness and to live in obedience. One that I don't think I have to do anything to argue or convince you is a problem is our fight with the flesh. Our fight with the flesh. How often do we have a bent to want to do things that are outside the realm of a clear Christian conscience, that are outside the realm of biblical obedience, but the flesh pulls. Some of you young people getting ready to go off to college. You've been living underneath the framework of your parents. You've been having to make your bed. Your mom tells you, to brush your teeth. Your mom tells you, wash your face. You're 17 years old. Your mom still has to tell you, and your dad has to tell, tell you to obey your mom, or you're going to get in trouble. Every day, you have to be told to brush your teeth. The next thing you know, you're off in the Navy, or you're off in college, and you're by yourself. You don't have to brush your teeth. You don't have to do any. I didn't wash my sheets for my whole freshman year of college. <laughs> When they got too disgusting, I threw them in the closet and slept on the mattress pad. See, that didn't violate my conscience, though. But the flesh is weak, isn't it? There's going to be all kinds of things that your flesh, the desires of the flesh, that part of us that is still being processed in the order of sanctification, some of the old ways die hard, don't they? What do you have to do? You've got to fight. No, I'm not going there. No, I'm not doing that. No, our family doesn't do that. You're not a legalist. You're fighting the fight. You're walking in obedience. That fits in with another enemy that we have, and that's the world, right? The world and its lusts are passing away, Paul said. And John said it as well in First John, Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What are we talking about the world? There's a lot of good things in the world, right? Baseball, automobiles, deer rifles, all kinds of things. But isn't there a great ability in us to sometimes go with the world that forgets God? that is a naturalist, that is a self-lover, that is a lover of self, that, that idolizes things and has no concern for God. It's a worldview that is outside of what is, what is biblical. It's a worldview that omits God. We don't care about God. And this world system, it's, it's, it's something you have to fight. That I don't get indoctrinated by the world. That's why we have to be careful what we watch on television. That's why we be careful what college professor I sit under. They're going to ingrain in my mind world philosophies that are outside of God's word. And I have to fight the world. So I have the flesh, I have the world. But I also have part of a spiritual warfare is the devil. Satan is at work to tear us down, right? Peter said, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I'm not sure what that all involves. Can't see them? They're schemes of the devil, the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6. One thing for sure that Paul is talking about with Timothy and reminding him of his combat, this fight the good fight, is that, look, when you live the Christian life, you can't just sit back in a lazy boy chair and take it easy. You've got to fight the fight. You've got to fight the flesh. You've got to fight the mindset of the world that would lead you astray from the Word of God, and you've got to be on alert from Satan's schemes. Satan always trying to hit you where, you're, where your underbelly's soft, where you're vulnerable. Paul said in Ephesians 6, clearly, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers. So know this, when the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to fight the fight, Timothy's combat did not mean to go punch people. It did not mean to take uh, jihad into your own hands. Take your knife and cut somebody's throat in the name of God. Christians don't do that. Christians are called to turn the other cheek. And so when Paul says, "Remember your come, remember your charge, remember your calling, and remember that you're in combat," he's to remember that he's in a warfare, and it's a spiritual warfare, and it's a systematized warfare against us. It's the kind of thing that makes you want to go to heaven. It's just like I get so weary of the fight. My flesh is weak. The world is pressing in on me. Satan seems to just be shooting at me from every direction. Lord, just come and take me away. Do you know that feeling? And Paul's reminding Timothy, fight the fight, don't give up. He then goes on to remind Timothy of his convictions. Notice what he says. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies that were once made about you so that by following them, you will fight the good fight. Don't give up. Holding on to faith. The fourth thing t- Paul mentions to Timothy is Timothy's conviction. Timothy's conviction. This is his faith, his doctrine, his belief system. He said, you've been taught, Timothy. You know the truth. Now stick with the truth. Do not detour from your conviction in the faith. The second part of that is number five in our list of what Paul is instructing Timothy, and that is Timothy's conscience. Look what he says. Fight the good fight, verse 19, holding on to faith, that's your conviction, and a good conscience. There it is. Your convictions in the faith and your conscience are very important to you, aren't they? Your belief system, what you understand God's word to teach and say and be, he says, hold on to it and then maintain a clear conscience. Because his reminder is look at the text. Some have rejected these. What are these? These are faith and a good conscience. They've rejected their doctrinal beliefs, their faith system, they've rejected it, and they've rejected their good conscience, and they've ended up shipwrecked. You want to shipwreck your life? If you're a college student, if you're going into the military, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a grown adult, here's what you do. You disregard your conscience to the degree... That your convictions change, and then you end up altering your faith system, your belief system, until you end up believing something you never believed before. Here's how it works. Let's talk about our conscience for a minute. You know what your conscience is, don't you? Conscience is one of those things that's a little bit hard to nail down. It's, uh, everybody has one. Do you know that even unsaved people have a conscience? Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can use your conscience... Something else about the conscience you need to think about is that the conscience is not a teacher. Now think about this. Your conscience is not what teaches you what is right and wrong. God has put within people's hearts a knowledge of what is right and wrong at some level. And then by and large, most of us have had somebody along the way, a grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, mom, dad, teacher, Sunday school teacher, somebody along the way who has taught you what is right. Maybe in vacation Bible school you memorized the Ten Commandments. Maybe you memorized the Bible verse along the way. Maybe you had the great privilege of having just godly parents who've just poured their whole life into educating you, teaching you, teaching you God's Word, having you in church. And you have a, your conscience has been shaped by being taught right and wrong. And then what is your conscience? It's not a teacher, but it's an alarm system. Your conscience is an indicator. It's kind of like one of those things where you start getting to the edge of your belief system, something that you know is right or wrong. It's like your conscience starts to speak to you. You know that feeling, don't you? It's kind of like a a little alarm that just starts to right i remember when i was in a dairy farm i worked on a dairy farm when i was in high school and uh we had a lot of electric fences and um to find out whether a fence was hot sometimes other than trying to get a new guy who was working there to grab it or (laughs) or do other things with it we um, we would take a blade of green grass a long blade of green grass you ever do this you're not a country boy if you haven't done this. You take a long blade of green grass and you you lay it on the fence. It's really true, isn't it, Woody? And you take you take your green grass and you just lay it on the electric fence and then you start pushing the grass towards the fence so that your hand is getting closer while the grass is lying on the electric fence. And guess what happens? In your fingertips, there's enough moisture in the green grass that it begins to pick up the electrical juice and it starts to tickle the ends of your fingers. And you can feel the juice that's not how your conscience works. It's like you're getting close to something that you think is dangerous. You know it's wrong. You shouldn't cross that line. And all of a sudden, the closer you get, the more intense it is. Do, 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 do. Bam! So, what's he talking about here? These guys in the church who have shipwrecked themselves, Hymenius and Alexander, have done what? Evidently, they knew that they had compromised their own consciences to the degree that they had done things that were either unethical, that lacked integrity, at least spiritual integrity, to the degree that they began to teach things that weren't even true, and they said they were true, and evidently their conscience said, that's a lie what you just said, that's not true. Conscience telling them. You're teaching things that aren't true, and you know it, and what did he do? He disregarded his conscience. You know, there's a lot of young people right over here. You need to really think about your conscience. If you've had the blessing of having God give you parents or an authority framework around you with enough spiritual, biblical thought put into it that you know God's standards enough, you're at a time in your life when you can really begin to compromise your standards. How do you end up shipwrecked? How do you end up shipwrecked? You end up shipwrecked, first of all, by taking small oversteps of the line of your conscience. A little small overstep. You know how that works? Maybe you're with some friends and you go somewhere, but you're not really doing anything wrong. And there's really nothing wrong, technically, with you being there. You're old enough, and, and, but your conscience begins that little tickle. This, this isn't where you belong. <laughs> but I haven't done anything wrong. Right? And so what do you do? You rationalize. You rationalize. And you begin to convince yourself that I've done nothing wrong and I can't be arrested right now. And you think, but your mommy wouldn't want to see you right here. But that's all right, I'm 19. I'm oh. Just remember, when you're 19, you're not the smartest person on the earth. Okay? <laughs> and your conscience, and so what do you do? You crowd, you crowd the parameter of your conscience. And you begin to take oversteps. That's step number one of violating your conscience. Little rationalizations that overstep the conscience. Then you come back and you actually feel bad about it. You actually feel badly. You think, man, I shouldn't have done that. I'm not going to do that again. But then your friends say, hey, come on with us. Come on, we're going to go. Well, I didn't really do anything wrong the last time, and so I'm going to go this time. And so the second thing that happens, not only these little small oversteps, but there begins to be, number two, a repeated disregard for the warnings of your conscience. There becomes, there becomes a repeated disregard for the warnings of your conscience. You hear it, but you have gotten good at putting it away. You've gotten good at saying, shut up, hit the off switch, and you keep going. I take it that Hymenaeus and Alexander had experience somewhere, and Paul knew it, that this is how it works. They were men who were leaders in the church. They opened up their Bibles. They weren't trying to get the kids in Sunday school to smoke cigarettes or something and violate their conscience. But as they taught the apostles' doctrine, and as they taught, they began to put a spin on it. They began to, and their consciences told them they were wrong, and they kept doing it. And they repeated it, and the next week they came back, and they built on it. Until their consciences were seared. Their consciences became insensitive. Small oversteps followed by repeated disregard to the promptings of our conscience, leads to ultimately a step three, which is, I become very comfortable in a whole new zone. I'm very comfortable here. This reminds me of the psalmist a little bit. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners. Or sit in the seat of mockers. Did you get the progression? The first day, I'm just walking with these guys. I'm not doing anything. I'm just walking with them. Blessed is the man who does not walk. But then the second day, he finds himself standing among the sinners. He stopped walking. He's now standing. And then ultimately, he is seated in the seat of the mocker, the one who is mocking God, blaspheming God. Never intended. I was just walking. Next thing you know, he's seated, because why? Because he has become very comfortable with his new arena. He has become very comfortable in places he never would have been before. The fourth and final step of shipwrecking your faith here is that what you have to do to suppress your conscience, you see, you've, you've messed with it, you've surpassed it, you've become comfortable with it, and now, Finally, you have to do what? You have to alter your belief system to stay comfortable. You can no longer believe what you used to believe and be where you are. You have to say, (laughs) I can't believe I used to be like that. And now you're this great libertarian and you're involved in indulging in all kinds of things or you're teaching things or you're doing things. I mean, this works at all different levels. And you say, I don't really even believe that anymore. I don't believe that anymore. That was what my Sunday school teacher taught me. And her pastor taught her that. And he got it from the Word of God. And the Word of God was written by the Apostle Paul. And they disregard that stuff. And we come up with a new belief system so that we can live within a framework. You've seen people like this. Maybe you're one of them. And you get pushed. Somebody comes and confronts you. And somebody says, what are you doing? You said, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm just living. What are you doing? It's like, well, you can't do this and this, and why are you doing this? Man, you don't understand. It's not like that. That stuff, I don't even believe that stuff anymore. And there you are. You're the frog that's beyond cooked in the kettle. And there you are. Compromise the conscience. And so Timothy's conscience was called in here into play. And Paul says, watch your convictions, your faith, And your good conscience, a faith and a good conscience, need to be protected. Listen to it. And he says, some have rejected these. What have they rejected? They've rejected faith, their convictions, and their good conscience, so they end up shipwrecking their faith. This is a college student who goes off to school believing in Jesus, believing in the resurrection, believing in a creation of seven days, believing God spoke the worlds into existence, believing that sin is an affront to a holy God who comes back their sophomore year when they're 19 years old at the apex of idiocy, and they say, I don't believe any of that stuff. So You can't prove it, and it's not real. And they're into a whole new line of thought and all kinds of other things. What's that all about? It was about violating their good conscience and being careless about their faith, and they become shipwrecked. Shipwrecked. The Apostle Paul gets even more interesting here in this passage, I think, anyway. The most fascinating part of this passage then is number six. It's Timothy's challenge. Timothy's great challenge ever evidently was this Hymenius and Alexander. These guys have violated their faith and their good conscience. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What in the world does that mean? That sounds pretty like, wow. Hey buddy, I'm going to hand you over to Satan. We don't know a lot about these guys. If you flip the page and you turn to chapter... Chapter 2, verse 17. The Apostle Paul evidently mentions this Hymenius again. Chapter 2 in verse 17. Excuse me, this is 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and verse 17. 2 Timothy 2:17. 2, the Apostle Paul is going to mention Hymenius again, and it's not in, a, in good favor. Look what he says. He says, um, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it, verse 16 will become more and more ungodly. That was part of the problem in 1 Timothy chapter 1. They had gotten into godless chatter and meaningless jibber-jabber, remember? And they became more ungodly. Their teaching, verse 17, will spread like... Look at the word he uses in the NIV translated, gangrene. That is nasty, pussy. (laughs) Gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. I take that to be the same Hymenius, this guy who has violated his convictions and violated his conscience to the degree that he now believes things and teaches things that Paul identifies as a gangrene in the church. That's serious. Remember, this is church matters, and church really matters. So Paul says to Timothy, you've got to take care of it. The other guy, Alexander, we don't know about. We know that in 2 Timothy, you don't have to turn there, you can go back to chapter to 1 Timothy 1, but in 2 Timothy 4.14, there is a guy named Alexander that the Apostle Paul says was a metal worker who had done him very much harm. Bible scholars and commentaries are not in agreement that this would be the same Alexander. We don't know. Alexander was a common name in that time, and so it, it very well could have been a different guy named Alexander. But Hymenus and Alexander are two guys that the Apostle Paul calls out by name. We're not very good at this anymore, are we? If we do, then we're characterized as like mean, callous, fighting fundamentalists who are so unloving. I take it that this was a very right thing for the Apostle Paul to do. And in fact, he says, not only am I calling out these two guys who are leaders in your church... But Timothy, I want you to know that already, in my mind, I have delivered them over to Satan. Paul only used that phrase one other time. Why don't we turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is also a very interesting passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's uh, see if we can learn a little bit more about this interesting phrase, turning someone over to Satan. We're not really given instruction about it in the Bible, and it's not really there to just say, hey, in your church, when you have so much problem with this person, turn them over to Satan. But we do have precedent, don't we? We don't really have teaching on it, but we have the precedent. Paul told Timothy, turn him over to Satan. Is this something that was apostolic in nature, that only an apostle could do? I took it to be that it was something that the church did, and that it was part of discipline. Let's remind ourselves that in Matthew 18, before the church was even in existence, this is pre-cross, pre-Pentecost, that Jesus, our Lord, gave instruction on how brothers who are in disagreement ought to confront one another. Do you remember that Matthew 18 passage? You don't have to turn there. But it's basically like this. It's basically, if your brother offends you or your brother sins against you, you're to go, with him, go to him one-on-one. And... Um, If he doesn't repent and he doesn't confess and and reconciliation isn't reached, then you're to go get somebody else and bring them with you. And with two or more, you're to confront him and say, look, and beg of him to make things right and to get rid of sin and, and to reconcile. And if that step doesn't work, then you're supposed to bring him before the church. Get the elders involved and bring him before the church. And the church is supposed to confront him. And then if he rejects him, then you're supposed to excommunicate him. In case I forget to say it again, ultimately, in short, most likely what this idea of the giving someone over to Satan means is to excommunicate him out of the church. But here's how it works, and here's why. This is very interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul uses the exact same phrase with a problem that was going on, a problem person in the church at Corinth. He doesn't name the guy's name, but he says what he's doing. In 1 Timothy 1, he names their names, and he doesn't say so much what they're doing other than teaching things that were going to be a gangrene in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, here's what was going on. He says it in the first part of the passage. It was that there was a guy in the church who had hooked up with his father's wife and was living in sexual sin with his father's wife. I take it to be that it wasn't his biological mother... says that it is reported among you that there is sexual immorality that is a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. In other words, in the culture of their day, it was not accepted for the hardcore pagans to even do this kind of behavior. And what it was, was his mother had evidently died, or his father and mother were divorced, and this young man in the church, after his father had remarried, started hanging out with his father's wife, and then they started a relationship. She left his father, and she was living with him, unmarried and in sexual sin, with his father's wife. Well, this was a huge affront to the honor of his father and to his position as a son, and there they were. But what was even worse in the Apostle Paul's mind was not only that this was something that wouldn't even go on in the world, they they wouldn't even accept this. They would not tolerate this in this culture is that in their church, what had happened was, it had become okay. It became one of these kind of churches where, it's like, they became very proud and puffed up of the fact that they had all these kinds of people in their church, who were, even this guy, living in this open, known sin, but because we are so loving, and we are so grace-focused... That it's okay. And Paul says, it is absolutely not okay. What is wrong with you? I'm not even there, and I can cast judgment from here. Get the guy out of your church. And here's what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. He says, first of all, and here's the steps of turning someone over to Satan. Step number one. Do it publicly. It is to be done publicly. Look at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, he's talking about the congregation, so when the congregation comes together, you are to call a meeting. And it's to be public. The congregation is to be there. Number one, it is to, to be done publicly, and everybody is knowledgeable of what the meeting is for. Secondly, it is to be done spiritually and prayerfully. This is not... This is not like a public execution where everybody's going to find glee in picking up stones and killing this guy. It is to be done spiritually and prayerfully. Look what he says. He says, You are to call the congregation and to assemble, and it is to be done, verse 4b, in the name of our Lord Jesus. So it is to be done in Jesus' name, and it is to be done with apostolic approval. The Apostle Paul, he says, My spirit will be with you, Spiritual leadership is to give their affirmation to it. I take it that for a meeting to take place in the name of Jesus, that they would have prayerfully, very prayerfully and spiritually come together. This is not funny. Nobody wants to be there. Okay, so let's just pretend this is happening. Here we are, we're gathered. We come in and we sit down. And you know why we're here. We're here to commit somebody to Satan. Whoa, wait till this hits the newspaper. Fellowship Bible Church is going to commit somebody to Satan. And we don't even talk like this anymore, do we? The first thing we do is we call a meeting. We let everybody know. So it's done, number one, publicly. Secondly, we're going to take time to pray. And so the elders will stand and pray. We may be even so serious about it, we would all get on our knees right by our chairs. And we would just pray. Maybe there would be even weeping going on. So thirdly, the third thing he goes to is he says, and then... Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Thirdly, I use the word officially. I take it there was some kind of a public statement. How else do you do this? He says, hand this guy over to statement. Satan, do we manhandle him? I take it that it's likely the guy wasn't even in the meeting. He was long gone. He was on another trip with his father's wife. And they say, so we've met. It's careful, it's prayerful, and it's official. And so maybe the chairman of the elders or the pastor gets up and he says, okay, you know that we're here because of this guy. And he names his name. And he said he's living with his father's wife. And we cannot let this happen in our church And furthermore, we need to see if there's any way he will repent of this because he's already rejected our approaches. We've already done Matthew 18 with him before we get here. And he's rejected all that. And so there's an official statement. Hand this guy. And I take it that Paul wanted Timothy to do that with Hymenius and Alexander. Your job is to make an official statement of handing them over to Satan. He then goes on and he says that it is to be done, number four, hopefully, hopefully. Look what he says. So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. We're doing this with a reason. We're doing this because we really do care about this guy. Our hearts are truly broken over this. And it's done, hopefully, that he will restore to the faith. Notice that it says in the NIV, it translates sinful nature. In the NIV translates it sinful nature. The New American Standard Version translates the word there, The flesh. Bible students are not in agreement what this means. I take it to mean that in in us excommunicating him and handing him over to Satan, it's as though the church is a big umbrella of grace and he's part of the fellowship. And when we push him out from under the umbrella, that Satan is going to have an approach to him that will beat him down, even in the flesh. He will ultimately, he's just going to, you know that sin always grabs you in ways you're not always aware of and it takes you places you don't always want to go and it keeps you longer than you want to stay and it takes you farther down than you want to go. That's what sin does. And so it's kind of like speeding up the process. While he's under the umbrella of grace in this church, he's kind of protected and he's kind of floating along But if we push him out so that he doesn't have the protection and the spiritual oversight and the common grace that is provided by our church, and there is a common grace by being part of a biblical, godly, local church, get him out there so that hopefully the toilet flush of the spin of sin in his life will take him down fast so that one day he wakes up maybe half frozen with his wet pants and dirty shoes and maggots in his hair and he says what am i doing and you want to speed it up you want to let satan just grind him up a while so that he comes to his senses kind of like the prodigal son finds himself up to his elbows in pig slop and he realizes what in the world am i doing here and it wasn't until he got into pig slop that he woke up paul says do it hopefully Make it happen. He goes on, though, to remind them not to be proud. Do it humbly, number five. But then he says, look at the end of chapter five of 1 Corinthians 5. God will judge those outside in the world. In other words, verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Okay? In other words, we don't worry about sinful pagans who don't come to church. God will take care of them. We expect them to sin. Dogs bark, sinners sin, that's the way it is. But Christians aren't allowed to do this. And verse 13, God will judge those outside, but I'm telling you, expel the wicked man from among you. Expel, spit him up, get rid of him, get him out. It's not done in hatred, it's done in love. It's done in hope that he'll be restored. But I take this in number six, I put down that it's physically, it's to be done physically or literally. That is, he is to be told, you are not allowed on our property. You are not to eat at our tables. You are not to fellowship among us. You are to be gone. And when you're ready to repent, then you come back. After that, we have nothing to say. That we will continue to pray and we'll hope. And that, as far as I can tell, is what it means to deliver somebody over to Satan. It is a part of church discipline. It is a part of trying to salvage and save someone who has shipwrecked their soul. I take it, it is to be done only with people who are professing believers, people who have a testimony of faith along the way in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we get from this passage? Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.18, so it teaches him not to blaspheme, not to disrespect God anymore. Don't disrespect God. Just a couple thoughts in conclusion. Number one, I think that this passage is a great reminder of the importance of our local church. You see that in there? The local church is so important that Paul said, you take care of it, Timothy, and you take care of it even to the degree that you take Hymenas and Alexander and deliver them over to Satan. Why is he doing that? Because the local church is so important. It cannot be broken. Get rid of the sinners who are unrepentant, Protect it. But I think it's also a reminder of us that our local church is so important that we shouldn't want to live without it. We shouldn't want to live without it. If you ever get pushed out of a church and it's a true, godly, Bible-believing, biblical, loving group of people that do it because of your sinfulness, you had better wake up because you don't want to get out there, out from underneath the umbrella of your local church. You're going to go places you never dreamed you would go you are going to be broken in ways you've never known brokenness. It's a reminder of the importance of our local church and being in good standing. And let me just say this too. I think secondly, it is a real picture of Christian love and compassion. You say, this is the part I don't get. That is a harsh, legalistic, fundamentalist, arrogant church that would do that to that guy. I would say, you couldn't be further from the truth. For this guy to have people that care enough about him to get on their knees and pray and with tears weeping down their face say we deliver this over to Satan so that in the day of God's coming you'll be, you'll be with us. What good is it to live with a little bit of sinful pleasure now if you miss all of eternity? He says you, these people care enough about it to take care of this business. That's huge. This is a picture of Christian love and how important it is to take care of each other which reminds me finally that this is a vivid reminder for all of us a vivid reminder for all of us to stay number 1 humble and number 2 accountable stay humble so that when you do sin if somebody pulls up in your driveway and you're in your garage working and I've done this to guys before and I said another church another time walked up to a guys his boss called me they caught him stealing from work he was our Sunday school superintendent I went to him and I said, man, listen, my brother, you need to wake up. you got issues going on that you need to deal with. Stay humble enough so that if somebody who loves you enough to come to you, to confront you in your sinfulness, that you will break. And you will get down on your face and you will weep and you will be broken. you say, I don't want to stop this nonsense. And stay accountable enough so that there's people who know you well enough that they can tell if your ship is going towards the rocks and will do something about it before you shipwreck. You let your conscience go and you end up altering your faith because of your broken conscience. You end up on the rocks and shipwreck. It's not a pretty picture. And Timothy was given this by Paul to take care of this business because his church mattered that much. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this teaching, and uh, Lord, in in our culture, this is uh, really pretty foreign. We're not supposed to tell people when they're wrong, and yet your word is very confrontive. And Father, we've redefined love to be something that it's not always, and so help us to have a true, deep-seated love and concern for brothers and sisters that we walk in the truth, that we love the truth, and that we walk beside one another in humble encouragement. Father, if there's someone sitting in this room this morning who has been stepping beyond the bounds of their conscience and they know it, would you please humble them, wake them up, give them the self-control to back up, give them the Christ-focus to get things right before they end up shipwrecked, even altering their faith. Father, teach us, help us to search our hearts regularly, help us to live self-scrutinized lives that we would be very careful in these matters. Please make application as needed through your Holy Spirit throughout the congregation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.